The subject that I want us to consider in the examination of the final two verses of this epistle is brotherly love among trying times. Brotherly love among trying times. Peter writes under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. In these concluding words of Peter, we find that during times of great trial, during times of great suffering, times of great loss, it is absolutely imperative that God's people kindle the fire of Christian love among the community of Christ's church. And to show you what I mean, I want to begin by pointing out from verses 12 and 13 the communication of Christian love, the communication of Christian love. And what I want you to take notice of within these two verses are the many practical ways in which Christian love has been shown to these suffering believers that Peter is writing to through this epistle. We find first that Christian love has been expressed to these suffering saints through Peter's pastoral care. As we zoom out and consider the whole of the letter, we see that Christian love is infused within this letter that Peter is addressing to these specific people. Well, let's think about it for a moment. Why did Peter take the time to pen all that he did throughout these five chapters? What was the driving purpose of Peter giving his time and energy to pray, to think about, and to sin Comforting reminders of God's love for them, as well as pointed spiritual directives regarding how they ought to live in the midst of their trouble. Well, I submit to you that Peter's primary motivation for speaking biblical truth to discouraged and wearied saints was his genuine love for their spiritual well-being, their, his genuine love for their souls. You see, Peter did not write what he wrote to these believers because he was being paid to write this. Peter did not write what he wrote to these believers because he was bored and had nothing else to do. Peter did not write what he wrote to these believers because he was some self-righteous know-it-all who desired to put other people in their place spiritually. Peter wrote what he wrote because he genuinely cared for the spiritual life of Christ's sheep. Peter prayerfully wrote what he wrote, being guided by the influence of the Holy Spirit, so that he might be the means of demonstrating on a human level Christ's love to them. So you will notice in this concluding portion of Peter's epistle that love has been demonstrated through the shepherd. Peter himself. And then you will notice, second, that we find Christian love being expressed to these suffering saints through Silvanus's willingness to deliver Peter's letter to them. 
Now, I know it is typical in our reading of Scripture to quickly pass over words like by Sylvanus and not give serious weight as to their meaning or application to our life. Oftentimes when we read words like by Sylvanus, we think they're merely procedural words of stating simple fact that the letter was delivered by someone. It's easy to read these words simply as a kind gesture done by someone, but I personally believe that these two words mean something far more. I believe the meaning of Sylvanus either dictating and or delivering this letter to suffering saints demonstrates Sylvanus's desire to see these people who've been dealing with disappointment after disappointment be encouraged by the Lord. Now, nothing is said in Scripture regarding how far Silvanus, or as many Bible commentaries think that this is Silas, the companion of Paul, how far he traveled to deliver this message. Nothing is said in Scripture regarding what he endured through the course of his travels. Nothing is mentioned about how much money he spent, what sacrifices he made in ensuring that this letter gets into the hands of church leaders so that Peter's letter might be read to the entire congregation for the benefit of the church, but we do know that it was more than pressing a send button on his email account. And we know this because email accounts did not come into existence but 30 years ago. So such letters had to be delivered, either by foot or by horse or by mule. Such letters were often read in one congregation within Asia and then delivered by foot or horseback to another congregation in Asia, and somebody had to deliver it. And it appears from Peter's mentioning of Silvanus's name that he was a man who had a sincere love for God, God's Word, and Christ's people. This was a man who wanted others to know God. This was a man who was willing to sacrifice so that others might hear the truth of God's word. You see, Silvanus could have resisted. He could have refused to deliver this letter to other people throughout the ancient world. Silvanus could have murmured and grumbled that to perform such a task is a waste of time. To deliver this letter of Peter's involves a lot of difficulty, danger, and expense. But that is not what we read. What we read is that this man, Silvanus or Silas, who Peter calls a faithful brother unto you, is a man who wanted to be a tangible blessing to others and wanted to be a practical help to the cause of Christ. Why? Because he loved God's people and he wanted God's people to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Silvanus knew that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, so he was willing to be used however God wanted to use him to bring this message to these suffering saints. This is love being communicated through men, first through Peter in the writing of this epistle, and then second through Silvanus either in the dictating or the delivery of this message. And then you will notice third that we find Christian love being expressed to these people 
through the warm greeting of the church that is at Babylon, which has now become a metropolis where Christians have been dispersed to through means of persecution. Now remember, because of persecution, God's people have been scattered throughout the ancient world. And as they're scattered, they're finding a place to live. They're finding a place to work. They're finding a community to belong to. They're striving to raise their families in the best way they know how. They're striving to be a light for the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we find that among such places, a church has been established in Babylon. And through Peter's communication with them, they have heard this church in Babylon of other believers throughout the world that have been persecuted like them. So what we have in this greeting is one group of persecuted people sending a warm hello to another group of persecuted people. And it's probable that these people, those that Peter's writing to in this epistle and those who belong to the church in Babylon, have never met. It's probable that they've never seen each other face to face. Nevertheless, Peter is showing us that they have something in common. And what is it? Well, both groups, though they do not know one another, though they've never met, have the common bond of being followers of Jesus Christ. These believers, though they are miles apart, can share in the bond of being persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ. And most of us know what this means to have another brother or sister in the Lord give us a warm welcome. Sometimes there have been instances of a brother or sister receiving a a text message, a letter, a phone call, a warm greeting through another brother or sister in Christ from someone you've never met. They've heard about your particular trial that you're going through, and they just want to make sure that you know that others are praying for you, and others want to be an encouragement in the Lord. And this is precisely the meaning of the text through this greeting. Peter wants these suffering saints to know that others are thinking of them. Peter wants these suffering saints to know that others are praying for them. Others are desiring that they would be strengthened in the Spirit of the Lord. Peter wants others within this congregation to know that outside of this congregation, they are not alone and they have not been forgotten. God's people are scattered throughout the entirety of the world and God's people are thinking about God's people. So we have in this greeting from the church at Babylon a warm, tenderly affection toward the people of Christ. And then the fourth instance of Christian love being shown to these suffering saints is found through the friendly greeting of this one named Marcus, which again has been attributed by some to be John Mark. Notice verse number 13. The Bible says, The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. Now, did these believers know Marcus? Did Marcus know these believers? Well, perhaps, but perhaps not. We're not sure because the text doesn't tell us. 
All we know is that Marcus must have told the Apostle Peter to tell these Christians hello for them as he's writing this message. We know that Marcus, or John Mark, had relation with the Apostle Peter, and in the course of communication, he's talking about Peter being an encouragement to these suffering believers who've been scattered abroad. All we know is that Marcus was a fellow follower of Jesus Christ who was very dear to Peter and was mindful of that which Peter's assembly was going through. But what I want you to see in all these things, in these last two verses, is the expressions of law, of love poured out to the believers that Peter is writing to. In the final greeting of Peter's letter, we find example after example after example of these suffering saints being lavished with love for them by others. We find instance after instance of fellow sheep around the world, brothers and sisters in Christ, thinking of them, praying for them, wanting to help them, desiring to encourage them, and going out of their way to sacrifice for them. And this teaches us what true Christian love is by its very definition. Listen, true Christian love is not some kind thought that rests in your head. True Christian love is not some sappy emotion that rests in your heart. True Christian love is more than just warm words expressed by your mouth. True Christian love is the act whereby we die to our wants and wishes and selflessly put the needs of others before our own. Do you see that in the passage? This is what it means to love. Love is not merely an affirmation. Love is an action. These people did not love in thought, in words. They loved in deed and in truth. They truly loved by going out of their way to let others know that they cared. Now trace it from beginning to end. Peter took time to write the epistle. Silvanus took time to deliver the epistle. And then we have the church in Babylon and Marcus exerting the necessary effort to make certain that Peter tells these suffering saints that others are thinking of them and praying for them. So what do we find highlighted in the final two verses of Peter's letter? We find first the way in which these believers have been loved. We find practical instances through which Christian love has been communicated to these people not merely by one's lips, but by the life sacrifices of others. And I want you to notice now in my second point, the command of Christian love, the command of Christian love. In verses 12 and 13, we find the communication of Christian love. Now in verse 14, we find the command to exemplify Christian love. Peter says, verse 14, Greet ye one another with a kiss of 
charity. And such a kiss was a common way of affectionately greeting others during the times of the apostles. Now, this is a foreign practice to most Americans, but among many nations, even still today, it is customary to greet others with a kiss on the cheek. For us, such a greeting consists of shaking hands or maybe a warm hug, but this was something that happened in Peter's day, a kiss of charity. Greet one another with a holy kiss, the Apostle Paul says. And the truth that Peter is emphasizing here is the fact that those who have been loved much by others now have a responsibility to love others much. Those who have received love from others ought to now demonstrate love to others. And this practice of greeting one another among the community of God's people with a kiss of charity assumes that the believers greeting one another will be, catch it, personal with one another. It assumes that God's people will approach others, that it will be something that is perceivable by the church family. And by the way, a believer cannot greet one another with a kiss of charity if they are not present. A believer cannot truly practice the warm greetings that are mentioned within the Scripture unless they are present at church. You say, yes, they can, Pastor. We have text message and email. Well, I say that's not the biblical method of greeting. So no, you can't. The biblical method of greeting others is to be present, to see visibly that person who is before them and actually greet them with a warm, affectionate greeting. So getting real practical here, bringing it into our congregation, this means that coming before the service and maybe staying a few minutes after the service provides us opportunity to greet others in a warm Christian way. You cannot greet others and get to know them and seek to be an encouragement to their soul if you come late and leave early. You cannot really do what Peter is saying if you just run past the ushers into your pew and start staring at your phone where, waiting on other people to greet you. The biblical model for greeting others is to lift up your eyes and look. To take the initiative to go out of your way to greet a fellow brother and sister in the Lord. Greeting others among the body, among the church, looks something like this. We look around on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and say, well, who do I not know? Who can I introduce myself to? Who looks like they need an encouraging word? Who can I be a blessing to today? Who can I invite over for lunch? Who can I pray for? Who can I love on? What I want you to see is the focus on others within this command. 
Peter's teaching these believers that coming to church is not about others doing for you. Coming to church involves you doing for others. It doesn't say wait around and let others come and greet you. It says you greet one another with a kiss of charity. So somebody responds, but pastor, you don't understand. I'm suffering. I'm going through a hard time. I'm struggling. I'm I'm spiritually depressed. Well, newsflash, so are others. So get the focus off of yourself and greet others. This is the contextual meaning of Peter's commands. These people are truly suffering. Peter knows that. What do they need? They need to be loved on. We've established that in our first point. But they need to now love on others as they have been loved on. That's what Peter is saying. Having reminded these suffering believers of the various occasions that they've been loved on by other men, Peter now turns the tables and commands them to love and to love tenderly, affectionately, and sincerely. And this leads us then to the third truth that is connected with Christian love that is to be demonstrated among Christ's church, which is the cause or the reason of Christian love. The cause or the reason of Christian love. What was it? that united the hearts of these Christians together? What was it that encouraged God's people to selflessly serve one another? Now think about it. Some of them have never met. We're talking about Jews intermingling with Gentiles. We're talking about the rich intermingling with the poor. We're talking about people of all different backgrounds and personalities. What is the singular spiritual component that produces such love to exist? Well, the text tells us such love can only exist in Christ, the one who is love. Notice verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. And Peter's echoing the truths that he's brought to the attention of these believers from 1 Peter chapter 1, they've been born again unto a lively hope. Now they stand in Christ. And then he echoes this in verse 14. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with all of you that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Peter speaking of their salvation. Peter speaking of their faith in the beloved. And this is the common cause of true love, true Christian love. The cause of true Christian love is Christ's love for them. Philippians chapter 2. Jesus Christ took upon the form of a servant. Jesus Christ made himself of no reputation. And he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the Father's will 
And in that he endured the cross for who? For his people. For those who would believe on him. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave. Romans 5a, God demonstrated his love towards us in that he gave. So knowing that God so loved the world that he gave his son for their souls, knowing that God demonstrated his love to them, Christ selflessly sacrificed for their benefit. Knowing that Christ loved them and gave himself for them, they could selflessly love one another as Christ commanded. You see, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that has conquered and is now controlling the hearts of his people that enables his people to love. It's the grace of God that beats within the hearts of God's sheep, that brings a warmness and a connectedness among the flock, yes? Now, if you're a Pharisee, you don't understand this love. Christianity to you is nothing more than externals and rituals and rules and standards and strict doctrine. If you're without Christ, if you have a form of godliness, but you do not have true faith in Jesus Christ, Church life to you is all stiffness. It's something that you do out of tradition. And you do not sense such a closeness to others because, here it is, you are outside of Christ. But if God has shown mercy to your soul, if God has brought salvation into your life, you will not only desire to be among God's people, you will desire to demonstrate Love towards those that Christ loves. There will be, in the hearts of true believers, tangible instances of Christ's grace, Christ's mercy, Christ's patience, Christ's kindness being expressed one toward another. This is Ephesians 4.32. Be kind one one to another. Tender-hearted, forgiving, even as Christ hath forgiven you. You can be kind and tender-hearted and, yes, even forgiving among the flock, knowing that Christ has been kind to you, that Christ has forgiven you. Peter says, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother who's failed me, who's done me wrong? And Peter reminds, or Jesus reminds Peter that because Peter has been forgiven so much through the merits of Christ that Peter can go and do likewise. This is what Peter is saying. In the concluding words of Peter, what truths do we find? We find three truths. First, the communication of Christian love toward these suffering saints. And the communication is not just verbal. The communication lies in the actions of these people who've sacrificed. We find, second, the command to exemplify Christian love among those who are before them. So those who've received love now are given the command to love. 
And then third, we find the cause of all Christian love, which is knowing Christ's love personally, knowing Christ's love in the heart through the saving power of the gospel. Now, as I draw to conclusion by way of applying the truths and the principle of this text to our lives, let me give you what I believe the two tempting tendencies that we have that we encounter when we suffered, followed by spiritual remedies to combat these tempting tendencies. So the question now is, God, through Peter, concluded this letter with reminders of togetherness, with reminders of love that happens among the church. So what idea, what practice is Peter seeking to correct? What sinful tendency do we meet with that we need to be watchful of when we go through times of suffering. Here it is. During times of suffering, God knows and Peter knows we have this tendency to withdraw ourselves from others. That's what Peter is attacking in these final few verses. The first tempting tendency we have among trying times, is to withdraw from that place that we need. If I've seen it once, I've seen it a thousand times. Among those who profess the name of Christ, someone goes through a difficult situation, someone goes through a difficult season of life, they're dealing with discouragement, someone's facing a time of great trial, and they think what they need is to withdraw themselves from Christ's church rather than commit themselves anew to Christ's church. I've heard it. The pastor calls on the one struggling, the one suffering. The pastor visits the one suffering, going through trying times. And the one suffering says, Pastor, I just need a break. I need to get away. Leave me alone. I'll come back to church when I'm feeling better. I can handle this by myself. And meanwhile, as I preach, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible, I'm thinking to myself, if only they were here, this text would be a balm to their soul. If only they were here to see other people give testimony of their coming to faith in Christ and following the Lord in believer's baptism, If only they were here during their time of suffering, they would see that God is still working, that God is still good and worthy of all praise. You see, Peter knows that this is a tendency that we have. This is why he's encouraging others to be united with a flock. When one sheep goes astray from the flock, guess where the wolf is? Guess where that roaring lion, the devil, who is waiting to pounce is? The roaring lion is looking for that weak one who is by themselves. Don't forget, we just looked at this a few chapters up. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, as a roaring lion, is walking about seeking whom he may devour. And whom do lions look for first? The weak one who is apart from the flock 
and is away from the shepherd whose staff is in his hand who can fight off the enemy. The devil attacks people when they are alone. God never intended God's people to be alone. In the fight of faith, Marines, help me out. When you go to combat, when you go out into the field, when you train with your fellow soldiers, you need backup. Somebody watch my 12, my 3, my 6, and my 9. Yeah? I'm going in. Cover for me. Accountability. Unity. We're in a war, church. God's never intended for us to fight this war by ourselves. So he's given us the church. He's given us one another. Others who are likewise laboring in the work of the Lord with us. This is why Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up again. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? If one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Peter knows our first tempting tendency during time of suffering is to withdraw ourselves from others. And then Peter knows, second, that we have this tendency within our trials, within our troubles, within our suffering, to become self-focused. To develop this poor me attitude or sometimes a spirit of, look at all that I have gone through. Sometimes in our failings we've exemplified this and sometimes we've seen this in others. Someone goes through time of great heartache, time of great trial. But following that it continues for months and years. It's all about them. Every conversation is about them and their trials. They never ask how anybody else is doing. And they have this expectation of everybody serving them rather than striving to serve others. Self-focusedness sometimes likewise brings with it the tendency to forget how others have shown kindness to you. The self-focusedness blinds us. And in our blindness, we think, well, nobody has done anything for me. And that's certainly not true. So Peter's really putting his finger on two sinful tendencies we have in our trials. Number one, we have this tendency to withdraw from others, to withdraw from the church. And number two, we have this tendency to become self-consumed, self-focused. So to combat these things, Peter's laying down the various spiritual needs believers need to implement during times of suffering. And what are they? Number one, we need to be loved. That's what he is establishing in this text. We need to be shepherded by spiritual leaders. Peter is that spiritual shepherd. What do suffering saints need? They need a pastor. They need an overseer. They need one who can take the word of God and say, there's hope. It's not all 
bad, though it seems bad, God has a way of working it for good. Suffering sheep need to be confronted by spiritual leaders. Likewise, they need to be comforted by spiritual servants. And this is where Silvanus comes in. Silvanus is a selfless servant who has come to encourage God's people in the Lord. That's what we need. We need others who can come alongside of us to lift up our hands in the Lord. We need to be encouraged by spiritual brothers and sisters in the Lord, like the church in Babylon in Marcus. You see, during times of suffering, you need to be prayed for. Now, you can humbly, even maybe pridefully say, well, don't pray for me. I don't need any prayer, which only gives us the cause to think you need more prayer. Don't be so spiritual. But during times of suffering, you need to be prayed for. You need to let others bear your burdens with you. You need fellowship. You need accountability. You need spiritual provoking. That's first. We need to be loved. And then number two, we need to love. Not only do we need to be loved, but we need to love. So yes and amen, come to church to be loved, to receive, but also come to church to be a blessing. Come to love. Look for opportunities to be an encouragement to others. Practice the one another commands. What are they? Well, pray for one another. Bear one another's burdens. Provoke one another unto love and good work. Exhort one another. Encourage one another. You do this for others. As the sermon ends, don't rush to your car. Check off the box. Well, I went to church today. Look around you. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? This is the Christian life. This is church life. We need one another. Others need us. You need to recognize that you are not the only one struggling. Listen, people come in, carry their Bibles, they smile, they sing the songs, but you don't know what's going on behind the curtain. It seems on the surface that they're doing fine. When maybe, just maybe, they need someone to come alongside to show the love of Christ. So, so may church life at Calvary never be, let's keep our distance as if COVID has returned and we need to stay six feet apart from one another. May it never be that, but a warmness and affection, greeting one another in love. So then how does this come? We've established it from our text. How does this come? It comes when we keep our eyes on Christ, when we reflect upon His love for us. This comes, practically speaking, when we expose our hearts to God's holy word. You see, this is God's love letter. Genesis to Revelation is about God's love for sinners. God's love in Christ for those who did not first love him. This word is about God in Christ reconciling and redeeming those who did not deserve such love. So, 
as we remind ourselves of who God is, God is love, and what Christ has done for us in that love, we take that and apply it among the brethren. Brotherly love can only come when we grow to know Christ, when we become familiar with how he loved others. This is what Acts chapter 2 is all about. The beauty of what took place on the day of Pentecost was the overflow of Christian love. So many Pentecostals and charismatic want to focus on the spirit and the spiritual wonders that happened at Pentecost. But I submit to you, that's not the glory of the passage. The glory of the passage, Acts chapter 2, is this explosion of true, tangible Christian love that others can see and others could feel. Read the end of Acts chapter 2 and you will see this unique togetherness. Jews and Gentiles, Jews dwelling among those they used to call dogs. What? And then this selfless caring for others. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and prayers and fellowship and the breaking of bread as others had tangible needs. The others, brothers and sisters in Christ, came along and said, I can help you with that. There's this true knowledge of what's going on in the lives of others. And it was all focused around knowing God's word and doing God's will. This is the Christian life. This is church life. Do you remember what Jesus said about brotherly love in John chapter 13? Jesus says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. What's the answer? If we dress up for church, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you have a fish sticker on your car, is that what it says? What is the singular element that others will recognize our faith in Christ? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And remember, love is not just a thought. Love is not just an emotion. Love is not just words. Love is selflessly serving others as Christ did. I'm also reminded of Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says to this church that was very self-focused and divided and contentious, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, And though I give my body to be burned, 
but I don't have charity, it profiteth me nothing. So Peter is taking this same truth and bringing it into the midst of the congregation of these suffering saints. What they need most of all is to kindle their hearts around the love of God in Christ so that they can kindle their love one for another. They're all struggling. They're all hurting. They're all dealing with heartaches and losses. But it's the tangible love of Christ through one another that is going to keep them persevering in the faith. That's what this church needs, practically speaking. 